John chapter number 10. I want to preach to you tonight on the threefold shepherd. Beginning in verse number 11, you catch up with me when you find your way there if you're not there yet. Uh, the Bible says in verse number 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. The wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must uh, bring, and uh, they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word through the power of the Holy Ghost. Father, that you give me the unction that's needed to preach your word. Father, that you give all of us the unction to listen uh, to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and hearts. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. But above all things, Lord, we pray you glorify your name, glorify your Son, that he'd be lifted up high and holy in this service. Father, we love and thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. The psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, we use that terminology, shepherd, and we just think of it as a fellow that's going to herd sheep. But if you understand the cultural dynamics of a shepherd, you'll understand that it implies a lot more than just a man that tends after sheep. It's one thing to be a rancher and to tend after cattle. Um, for, for the most part, a cow's going to tend to itself. I mean, if you string the fence out, you can leave it alone. Maybe you might have to winter it and give it a little bit of feed. I, I'm not saying there's no work that goes into it. Uh, but I, I don't know that you could call it a constant job. Uh, but that of a shepherd is that of a constant job. It's a personal job. It's a job that takes a lot of care, a lot of concern, and a lot of time. So I believe it's fitting that our Lord is called our shepherd. Three different titles concerning this idea of the shepherd are given our Lord in the Word of God. And we just read one of them. But I'll go ahead and give you all three of them very quickly. Uh, we find that in uh, John chapter 10, he's called the good shepherd. Uh, this reflects the idea of his past work as a shepherd, what he's done for us as our good shepherd. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20 calls him the great shepherd. This speaks of his present work in your life and in mine. And then in 1 Peter chapter number 5, the Bible says, when the chief shepherd shall appear. And this speaks of his future coming and of his future work. If I could uh, define them this way, I'd say that in the good shepherd, we see him as the benevolent shepherd. That word good has the connotations of someone that's a blessing. Someone that has done something for you. Uh, not just the idea of good morally, but good experientially. If you say, well, that's good. Some of you went to a restaurant today and when you sat down, they brought your food. You took a bite of it. You said, mmm, that's good. And what you meant by that was I have experienced this. And uh, what does the Bible say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. You have partook in it and you know the goodness of it. And then there's this idea of greatness. If the good shepherd is the benevolent shepherd, uh, this terminology great, we could use it in a lot of different contexts, but this particular word, what it means is vast. 
something that's big. Uh, we use this phrase concerning a national park. We call it the Grand Canyon. Well, what do we mean by grand? We don't mean that it's splendorous. We mean it's big. Well, the Bible calls our Lord the great shepherd. And it has the idea of him being a big shepherd, a big God. Can I say that for you and I that have big problems, we need a big God? For you and I that have big valleys, we need a big God. For you and I that have big trials, we need a big God. Can I tell you that our shepherd is great, our shepherd is big, our God is able? We would say that this is the big shepherd. And then he's called the chief shepherd. Now you say, well, what does that word chief means? Well, it means uh, in the Bible just what it means today. The idea of the boss shepherd, the man that's in charge, the man that has the authority, the man that has the preeminence. That's actually what that word means, him that is preferred. Uh, it's used in another context as the idea of the beginning. He is the beginning shepherd. He is the one that was before all things, Colossians chapter 1, and by him all things consist. I want to say a word about the good shepherd in John chapter number 10. We see him in a lot of different ways and a lot of different lights in these, sh uh, these uh, short verses that are here before us. But I would say that first off, part of the reason that he's a good shepherd, once you say God is good, once you have to say that tonight, I mean, we've sung it in the songs, we've said it in the testimonies, I think it's pretty well agreed upon, at least with the majority of us, that we've got a good God tonight. Can I say that the first thing that denotes his goodness, look with me in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. We see the shepherd crucified. Now, this is unusual because typically the value of the person in charge is more than the value of those that are his subordinates. I mean, typically, uh, if you had the choice, do I want to lose a sheep or do I want to lose my shepherd, you'd say, that's a no-brainer. We'll just lose a sheep. One sheep don't amount to nothing. But if we lose the shepherd, we've lost everyone. That might be true of any other shepherd, but neighbor, not the good shepherd. The Bible says he giveth his life for the sheep. He was willing, friend, to go out to leave the ninety and nine safely in the fold and to go out between the hills and the valleys and the crooks and the crags and the thorns and the rivers and to search for that little one lost lamb. That tells me God's good. Don't tell you that? You didn't deserve that no more than I did. If we got what we deserve, neighbor, if you got what you deserve, you'd be in hell with your neck broke right beside me. That's where you'd be tonight. But aren't you thankful we don't get what we deserve? You hear people complain all the time. Well, I just don't feel like I'm getting what I deserve. Thank God you're not. Thank God I'm not. I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm getting more than I deserve. I'm getting better than I deserve. If I got what I deserved, I'd be in hell. But because I've got a good shepherd, because I've got a shepherd that was willing to be crucified, I have a future. I have a hope. I have a promise. I have an assurance. We see him as crucified. Uh, look at the next verse. The Bible says, but he that is an hireling, not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth. Notice this because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. What does he say he did? I'm the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. We see him crucified, but we see him caring. Why aren't you thankful that he careth for us? The Bible says, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. It wasn't enough that he was crucified. If he hadn't cared, he wouldn't have been crucified. But even if he had uh, been crucified without caring, that wouldn't have been sufficient. Listen, friend, it is not the academic acknowledgement of the death of Jesus Christ and the burial and resurrection. It's not the academic acknowledgement that saves a man. It's the effectual acceptance of it that saves a man. 
It's when a man calls upon a living Savior. Why can we call upon Him? When you got saved, you assumed something. You didn't assume it. You knew it from the Word of God. But but your calling on the name of an Almighty God, you implied something. What did you imply? You implied that He cared enough to answer. You implied that He cared about you. I'll never figure out why God cares about me. I mean, I'll be honest when I'm telling you that. We have an unreasonable God because reason dictates that God wouldn't care a thing for me. There's a lot more important people God could have been dealing with on December 1st, 1997, than a 10-year-old boy. But the, the Good Shepherd, He cared. He was willing to speak to my heart. He was willing to convict me just as He was willing to convict you. Probably we don't have anybody of social significance in our service tonight. You know that's true. I mean, most of us, if we died, uh, it would not make national news. I mean, I don't know. I guess if you got buck naked and jumped out of a helicopter in the Super Bowl, it might. But just your death in and of itself probably is not going to make any waves in national headlines. I'm not a socially significant person. I mean, there's people... You know why I get away with saying things I, get, I, I say and am not put in jail? The only reason that I do is because government don't care what I think. Amen? If they cared what I'd think, they'd jail me for the things I preach. But the fact of the matter is they don't care. Hey, I've got a God that does, though. I've got a God that cares for me. He showed me He cared for me on Calvary. But not just on Calvary, friend. Every day the Lord's mercies are new. And you know what it says? Great is thy faithfulness. He cares for us day in. He cares for us day out. I want you to look, not only do we see him crucified and we see him caring, but look what the next verse says, verse number 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now you say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, he's referring to the Jewish fold, he's referring to the Gentile fold. He's saying, I've got some sheep that aren't Jews, and I, I've got to call them too. Uh, that's why it says one fold, one shepherd. Uh, the Bible says breaking down the middle wall of partition between us. Making uh, of twain one, one nation, one nation, one nation. You say, that's ecumenicalism. No, that's the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. That's what that is. It ain't going to happen by compromising doctrine. It's going to happen when the king comes. That's when it's going to happen. The Bible teaches that he's calling. He's calling. He didn't have to save you, and he didn't have to save me. And listen, he didn't have to convict you, and he didn't have to convict me. But a good shepherd, that's what he does. You see, a good shepherd, when his sheep wander, he doesn't discount them. He doesn't uh, cast them off as rubbish. But a good shepherd, he calls for them. It said concerning uh, sheep, and I'm not going to go through a whole, uh, you know, a thing tonight about the cultural context and stories and analogies about shepherds, but it said that every sheep, they know the voice of their shepherd. They hear it and they know it. I'm thankful not only did I hear him call when he convicted me of my sins, but I'm thankful I can still hear him calling, aren't you? I'm thankful. He said, I call them by name. I'm thankful He knows my name. I'm thankful He calls. I'm thankful He still speaks in my life. Hey, don't take the voice of God for granted. Well, one of these days you may wake up and not hear it. Is that okay? I mean, is that not true? Don't take the voice of God for granted because you may wake up one day and quit hearing it. You say, preach, are you saying I'm going to lose my salvation? No, no, I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. 
I'm saying you're going to lose your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And that's absolutely possible. Herod silenced the voice of God, John the Baptist. You and I can silence the voice of God in our lives. We see him not only crucified and carrying and calling, but look down at verse 27. Notice what it says. I like this. The Bible says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. Does not say the sheep earned it. Doesn't say the sheep help earned it. Doesn't say the sheep worked it off. Doesn't say that the sheep, if they didn't act sheepy enough, they was going to lose it. But the shepherd said, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We see the good shepherd crucified. We see him caring. We see him calling. But hallelujah tonight, we see him keeping his sheep. No man is able to pluck them. Out of the Father's hand. I don't know why so many people have such a problem with that. I, and people say, you know, people say dumb things. It'll amaze you. If you'll listen to society, it will amaze you how dumb people are. Amen? I, I mean, you'll listen to them and people say, well, what if I pluck my own self out of his hand? That's ignorant, neighbor. I mean, that is as ignorant. That's ignorant from a theological standpoint. That is ignorant from a common sense standpoint. But let me play along with you. You know, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that he has uh, measured the, the universe in the span of his hand. You go ahead and pluck yourself out, but you better get started now because you're way behind. It's going to take you a long time to get out of that almighty hand. The fact of the matter is, he's able to keep those that are his. Say, so what about those that aren't? Well, they're not his. Those that have never truly been born again, it's no wonder that they don't stay serving God. They don't know what they worship and what they serve. But those that have truly been born again by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God, those that have accepted not only His principles but His person, those that have come to Him not in pride and bargaining but in repentance and in faith and have accepted Christ as their Savior, it's not in your hands anymore. It's in bigger hands. It's in bigger hands. We see the good shepherd. He's the benevolent shepherd. He's the shepherd that has accomplished these things in our past. But look with me in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to turn to verse 20 when you get there. Hebrews chapter number 13. And uh, one fellow told me one time, said right there, it says in, uh, in, in black and white that God has dictated that the man should make the coffee. It does not say she brews. It says he brews. Amen. But I got to entertain you on the train ride over to that book of the Bible or else I'll lose you. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In Hebrews thirteen twenty, we have Him designated as the Great Shepherd. It speaks of His vastness, of His power, and of His ability, and it speaks of His present work in the life of those that have been saved. Do you know that we've got a big God? I, I mean, you, if you've been saved, you have a big God. So i got big problems, preacher. Yeah, but you've got a big God. I got, uh, preacher, I, I, I got big worries, and maybe you do. Listen, I, I learned real quick that you ought not underestimate the trials that people are going through. 
Because they fall into two categories. They fall into things that are big in reality, and then they fall into things that are big in relativity. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? I mean this. Uh, if you see somebody and they've got cancer and they, the, the doctors put an expiration date on their toe and they're waiting, that's a big problem in reality. Anybody would be bothered by that. Anybody would be bothered by that. Anyone would think that's a big problem. And then when I was a youth pastor, you know, I used to see some of these youngins and they would, they had found the person, they had found their soulmate. There's only 14, but they had found their soulmate. That was the person they was going to marry. And they knew. They had their life figured out. I mean, everything was nailed down. They knew. They knew. They knew. And then all of a sudden, somebody, with the passing of a note, amen, that's always how it happened, in study hall, the world crumbles. And, uh, you know, somebody asks somebody to a dance or somebody buys someone a snow cone. And all of a sudden, their world seems to crumble. And, you know, I've seen adults that make light of that. You know what's happened? You forgot what it was like to be 14 years old and have your heart broke. That may not be big in reality. And it's true. Those little ones are going to grow and get to a certain age where they look back and they say, you know, that was silly. But, you know, it's a big problem to them right now. And there's a lot of things that when you grow out of this earthly tabernacle and when you graduate to a glorified body and when you stand around the throne of the Lamb of God, you're going to look at a lot of your problems and say, you know, those weren't big problems. They may have not been in reality, at least not God's reality, but in relativity, they're pretty big. We all face problems. We've got a great big shepherd that's able to tackle our needs and our wants and our problems and our sufferings. We see first off his power who brought again from the dead, who brought again from the dead. The resurrection is the keynote doctrine of the word of God. The resurrection is probably more important, and there's no sense in uh, pitting doctrines against doctrines, but it's probably the most important doctrine in all of the word of God. He could have died for your sins, but if he didn't raise from the dead, he couldn't have saved you. He could have, because it's not an academic acknowledgement, but it's an effectual accepting. It's not just the fact that he died, but he's able to save to the uttermost. Not he was able or he has accomplished the ability. He is able. Present tense. It's not what he did that saves you. It's him that saves you. And he's able to save you because of what he did. So the power of God is always vested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the power of God expressed to you and I. And listen, if He can raise Christ from the dead, what can He not do in our lives if it's His will? If He can raise Christ from the dead, what could He not do in our lives if it was His will to do it? What it, You say, well, you know, preacher, we just, you know, I, I just wish I could see God do big things. Are you saved? If you're saved, God did something a lot bigger than parting the Red Sea. If you're saved, God did something a lot bigger than breaking a bunch of fish and bread and feeding 5,000. If you're saved, listen, if God resurrected your soul that was dead in trespasses and sins, He did something a lot bigger than when He cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And if He can raise our Lord and Savior from the dead, you say, well, that ain't no big deal. People have been raised from the dead before. Well, they hadn't raised themselves from the dead. I lay it down that I might take it up again. This, this power have I received, this commandment have I received from my Father. He raised Himself from the dead. That's how big of a God we've got. He didn't need anyone's help to raise Himself from the dead. He did it according to His own power. That's how powerful our God is. We see not only His power, but His perfecting. Perfecting. You see it in the verse there. Perfecting you to every good work. Perfecting. 
You say, what does that mean? That means maturing. That means God's working on you. That's what that means. It means God is working in your heart and life and bringing you to a place where you're closer to God than you've ever been before if you'll submit to the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, you see people get saved a lot of time and they'll say, well, uh, you know, that person needs time to grow in grace. I agree with that. I don't think they need a time to grow in worldliness. I get concerned when they're growing in worldliness. But all of us grow in grace and in truth if we'll submit to the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he's doing. He's perfecting. This idea of perfecting, uh, this word has the idea of polishing a stone or a metal, of uh, working on a work that will one day be completed. And you and I, friend, he's polishing on us. He's working on it. We may have to go through the fire, but it's for our refining. It's for our purifying. We see the perfecting. But you know what it says? To the well-pleasing. To the well-pleasing. We see his purpose. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness. What the psalmist say? For his name's sake. You're not here for you. You're here for him. You're not here for your pleasure. You're here for his purpose. You're not here for your comfort. Uh, you're here for your consecration. You're not here for your good. You're here for His glory. That's why you're in this world. You say, preacher, things just haven't been going my way. Maybe they've been going God's way. You ever thought about that? Maybe the problem is they've gone your way for too long. Maybe God's finally stepped in in your life and put the brakes on your life and said, you've been going your way for a long time, but there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, and the ends thereof is the ways of death. And he has just said, I love you enough to put the brakes on your life, turn you around, and get you from going your way to you're going my way. That's how big our God is. Our God is able to make us what we need to be for His glory, for His honor. 1 Peter 5, 4, and I'll say this in hush. We see the good shepherd, the benevolent shepherd, His work in our past. We see the great shepherd, the big shepherd, and His work in our present. But we see the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd shall appear. When the chief shepherd, I'll read it to you, I don't want to misquote it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 4, uh, the Bible says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. We see him as the boss shepherd. You say, well, that's, that's not as pretty and alliterated. Well, no, but it, it conveys the idea, amen? He is the boss shepherd. He is the king of this world. I know he's not the prince of this world, but he's the king of this world. Somebody say amen right there. I, I, I know that he may not be controlling the wickedness of this world, but he is in control of what takes place in this world. He is on His throne, and no one will unseat Him. We see three things. I want you to notice first His role, that of chief shepherd. No longer, listen to me, friend, no longer, no longer will He be led as a lamb to the slaughter. No longer will He be trod underfoot of wicked men. By one sacrifice, He put away sin. No one's putting Him back on the cross. I know the Roman Catholics like to convey him on the cross. Wonder why that is? Uh, did you ever stop and think maybe they like to convey him on the cross because their whole theological premise and principle dictates that his work was not sufficient and that it must uh, be supplemented by the work of the church and sacraments and charity? Could it be that's why they like to convey him as perpetually on the cross? Because they like to convey his work as perpetually unfinished and needing to be supplemented by the Roman Catholic Church. I don't believe he's still on the cross. I believe he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe he ever liveth 
to make intercession for us. I believe that we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. I don't believe that He stayed in the tomb. I don't believe that He stayed as a lamb led to the slaughter. I believe on the third day that He arose. I believe on the third day that He had victory. I believe He led captivity captive and ascended upon high and gave gifts unto all men. I believe that He ascended up into glory. I believe that He's coming back again. I believe that He is the chief shepherd. I believe He's exactly what He says He is. We see His role, but we see His return when the chief shepherd shall appear. Our shepherd has not left us comfortless, but He has given us the Holy Spirit. But He has also, not only has He not left us comfortless, He's not left us continually or perpetually. Our shepherd is returning. We may feel as though we are a flock scattered. And it's easy to feel that way in this wicked world. But our chief shepherd has promised he will return. And when he comes back, he's coming as a conquering king. When he comes, he's not coming for a vote. He's coming to set up a kingdom. We see his return. But finally, and I'm going to hush, we see his reward. Ye shall receive a crown of glory, which fadeth not away. I believe in crowns. I don't know, maybe that needs to be said, maybe it don't, but I'm going to say it because I believe it. I believe in crowns. I believe in a reward for those that serve Him. You say, preacher, I, you know, I, I thought everybody was on a level playing field. Well, it's level at the foot of the cross, but you've been playing children's t-ball too long. You don't think there's any winners or losers. The fact is, how you live your life is going to dictate how Christ rewards you. There's going to be some that are going to enter into his presence as a pauper when they left this world thinking they were a prince. And there's some that are going to enter into his presence and going to be lavished with crowns of glory and crowns of everlasting life that left this world in humility and meekness, considering themselves the chiefest of sinners. The fact of the matter is, how you live your life, that dictates how you're going to be rewarded when you get to heaven. Said so, preacher, are you saying that my good and bad works will be weighed against one another? No. The Bible clearly establishes that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His own mercy He saved us. Uh, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. But there's no question that we are foreordained unto good works. There is no question that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is no question that we shall give an account for the deeds done in the body, the things done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. And there is no question that one day God will take an account of your life and of mine. The question is, what will that reward be like for you in that day? Now, you don't have to consider that if you don't wish to. But I believe it's in all of our best interest for us to look at our own. Don't consider someone else's life. They're not accountable to you and you're not accountable to them. They've got a chief shepherd. They'll answer to their chief shepherd. But you as a sheep and me as a sheep, we ought to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, how have I lived? Would my shepherd be pleased? Have I been grazing where he told me to graze? Have I been staying where he told me to stay? Have I been obedient as he's expected me to be obedient? He don't ask a lot of us. He gave everything for us. He don't ask a lot of us. The question is, have you been serving and living and loving Him like would be pleasing in His sight.